Lynn and I will uh, be reading from John's Gospel. I'll be starting off from John chapter 18, verse 28, then chapter 19 to verse 11, then Lynn will take over verse 12 of chapter 19. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfil the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, we ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. 
and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfil the scripture, which says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. There is probably, no, there is definitely no more uh, dramatic passage in any book of literature or any historical Hansard than that passage that we have just read. And uh, thank you. Uh, for those who read it to us. And thank you for the choice of songs this morning, David, and how appropriate they are to this moment. We've been looking at a series over these, this last couple of months about getting a glimpse of Jesus, of becoming aware of who he is by slowing down to take a closer look. And today we must really slow down and look at Jesus up close. We will never have uh, in the rest of Scripture such a witness to the uniqueness of Jesus than we do in this passage that we have just read. And John's craft in terms of bringing us this picture of Jesus is done by a character contrast with one of the horrors of history. He could be any particular tyrant, He's the client governor, he's a puppet governor for, for uh, Rome. Rome is the unconquerable, efficient uh, economy that runs the whole world. Rome, people thought in this day, would be there forever. And so we have here a contrast of kingdoms or the empire of Rome versus the kingdom of God. And the sort of kingdom 
that struggles with empire, an empire that struggles with kingdom, is the history of the world. That is the world we are living in today. It's exactly the same. Empire versus kingdom. So as we look at these contrasting figures, I think if you keep in, one, in, in mind one word that opens up this text to us, it is the word irony or the word ironic. There is so much happening here that is sheer irony. We begin with the irony of the, the trial of Jesus has concluded, he's been isolated, his closest friends have scattered, even his closest friend Peter has denied that he ever knew him. Christ is incredibly isolated as a solitary figure and after a whole night of trial he's brought by the high priest to the governor's headquarters and ironically they themselves don't enter the governor's headquarters they are good Jews he is a Gentile and they are seeking to get one thing from Pilate and that is a conviction a verdict they've already passed a verdict but the historical record that we have of this era points out that Jews were not allowed to carry out uh, summary executions or capital punishment. They had to refer such cases to the governor and that's exactly what's happening here. But it's ironic that they have spent a night in a kangaroo court convicting this Jesus of the sin of blasphemy. But blasphemy, according to Rome, is not a capital offence. So they have to go along to the governor to get him convicted as something else. And uh, they haven't quite thought that through. But isn't it ironic that they don't want to contaminate themselves by entering his palace because they've got worship just ahead. The high point of the year is coming, Passover. There's two things that they can do to contaminate themselves and one is to enter a Gentile's house, to have any truck or trade with a Gentile would render them uh, contaminated. They would not be able to perform the sacrificial duties that are so essential to preserving the covenant that Israel has with God. They need to be clean, kosher. And yet they're depending on the unclean, the Gentile, to get this verdict. You see the irony? Not only that, but as they, uh, as they persist, they've got to actually have this guy killed and they don't want to kill him because to touch a corpse or to even have second level contamination with someone else who's touched a corpse would render them unclean. They would not be able to go and eat Passover or perform the ceremonial duties on behalf of Israel. Israel would be lost. What an incredible irony. For the sake of saving Israel, they kill the saviour of Israel. This sort of irony just builds as this goes on and they come along to Pilate. Now Pilate from what we know of history and we won't go into history but he was a socio-psychopath, an extreme narcissist even. Uh, this fellow had no conscience. He was not motivated by any vision save his own self-aggrandizement. He is a very dangerous character. And he holds the Jews in absolute contempt. He has no concern for their concerns. They go along wanting to have this guy done away with, but Pilate, he's not going to sign a blank check here. And he says, what has this guy done? Oh, we wouldn't have brought him to you unless he had done something worthy of death. Oh, yeah. Pilate knows the skullduggery of the chief priests all too well. It's actually peas in a pod. And so he takes Jesus in our second scene and we keep on switching in this story, as you'll notice, from outside where the game happens, inside where people are making moral decisions. Inside the house is inside the heart. Outside is just the politics worked out. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and he calls Jesus in verse 33 and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Now Pilate, he's heard the rumours. He knows that there was this triumphal entry into Jerusalem that everything stopped, was shut down just days before because of this guy. 
He knows what the gossip on the street is. Jesus, being the only one interested in court procedure here, seemingly says, uh, is this hearsay or are you actually saying this on the basis of evidence? And Pilate says, don't talk to me about process here. Am I a Jew? Your own nation has delivered him up to you. I mean, what on earth have you done? You know, convict yourself. <laughs> Incriminate yourself. What have you done? Jesus says in his classic words that are so familiar to us, my kingdom is not of this world. If I had your sort of kingdom, my people would be out marshalling their troops right now. We are going to overthrow this world, yes, but by revelation, not by revolution. It's a totally different character, the kingdom which I rule. And Pilate picks up on the words, he's not interested in meaning, he just said the word, here's the word king. So you are a king, aha, that's all he needs to claim to be a king in a Roman colony was the crime of insurrection, that's the sedition that leads to death. You are a king. Jesus says, well, that's your preferred term. It's not mine. I don't want to talk in those terms when your idea of kingship is totally other than the way I think about it. But I came into this world to bear witness to the truth. My game is revelation, to reveal truth. Not just concepts, not just ideology, not just an economic formula, not another philosophy. Truth concentrated. Truth pure. Truth of God. Everyone who is of the truth, everyone who is pure, everyone who is of God will listen to my voice and know it to be true. Pilate says... And he's done philosophy 101. What is truth? He's so typical, astonishingly typical of our generation. This could be said by any postmodernist, by Derrida, by Camus, by all the boys today, philosophically. We live in a world which has a very rubbery idea of truth. We live in a world that is trying to hold together things like truth and justice and compassion and love and yet it's abandoned the notion of true truth. I had a friend who uh, is a, uh, it's a few years back now, but he's a young lawyer uh, getting his accreditation as a barrister. He, he was uh, answered an invitation to go along to the Law Institute annual lecture. And a certain major lawyer, quite of some note, uh, now retired, was giving the address this particular year. I can't tell you who he was, but his initials were Galbelly. <laughs> and uh, he, um, he, his basic thrust of his address this year was that uh, the job of the barrister is not to get the best justice that the law will give for the client, which would be to, say, deal in truth. Our job is like the narrator, and we have to write a script which is plausible and places our client's interests in the best possible light. Did you get that? So the role of a judge and the role of the jury and the role of the lawyer, the role of the barrister, is to engage in theatre. What a dreadful place this is. You and I are very vulnerable in such a society. Everyone's vulnerable when there is no true truth. It depends on the skill and the artistry of the lawyer to concoct a narrative. And if your storyteller isn't quite as good as the prosecutor's storytelling ability, heaven help us. But this is the same in every department, not just the law. It's the same in history in the universities. It doesn't matter what so much, 
where there is good historical method, but in the postmodern approach to history, we have revisionist history, where it depends upon the social construction of the consensus at the moment to come up with an alternative narrative, regardless of the evidence. We are living in a very self-deceived age. Any other age would have called this neurotic. We call it maturity. It's understandable that uh, I believe, as Francis Schaeffer said 50 years ago, that this age that we're heading into will be the least tolerant because it is the least commitment to true truth. And this is the same situation here. Let's look at how a man with a rubbery commitment to truth deals with truth. He actually has truth staring him in the face in the person of Jesus Christ and he cannot recognise it because he'd like to avoid the responsibility that comes with committing himself to the truth. He doesn't want to be drawn. He doesn't want to have to make a decision on the basis of the evidence. He wants to remain on the fence. That's where he wants to sit in ambivalence. And so he basically takes Jesus back outside and he tries to politicise this event and he basically says, well, it just so happens to be Passover and they had this custom which was like having a wild card that uh, just in goodwill, Rome versus uh, Judea, you could get a prisoner released any year. Do you want to use your wild card on Jesus? You know, look, let's just... You haven't got the case. I can't find any guilt in him. He's no threat the way I read it. Why don't we use the wild card on Jesus? Set him free. And the Jews are rabidly against that. You see what they say? They cry out, not, and the emphasis in the language is the word this, not this man. They're pointing to him. They say, not this man. Release for us Barabbas. They'd prefer to have a robber released. In fact, probably the word robber here was a euphemism for insurrectionist. If you wanted to speak safely in the court of Rome, you would call an insurrectionist, oh, he's a robber, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Barabbas was a robber, get it? So ironically, what they're saying is, you know, we want you to convict this guy as an insurrectionist for the charge of sedition, release another insurrectionist. If we're going to release an insurrectionist, it's not this one. That's what they're saying. And so Pilate, he hasn't got any charge against Jesus. He knows the Jews are vehemently opposed to Jesus. He knows that the game is rivalry and bitter resentment. And so he takes Jesus inside and in one simple little sentence in chapter 19 we read he had him flogged. Why does he do that? And then he hands him over to the boys and it's like a bunch of schoolyard bullies and they belt him up. And then they mock him because the Jews said he's an insurrectionist so let's get him a robe. Hey, I'll make a crown. And they crown him and they dub him, and they clothe him as a mock coronation. It's a shocking scene. John only spends two sentences on it. Amazing. Because that's not where the action is. That's men doing their worst, like the schoolyard bully. Except this day, there'd be no school bell. No teacher to intervene, no big brother. He's at their whim, the whim of the highest empire the world has known, the epitome of political economy. It's the best humans have come up with till now. And so Pilate goes out and his words are critical. You see what he says? He brings Jesus out and parades him as his spokesperson. And he parades Jesus and you've got to sense the satire in his voice. And he says, so that you will know that I find no guilt in him, I present him. I'm bringing you out, a man, so that you'll know that there's no guilt in him. What on earth is he saying? Basically, 
Pilate is simply saying, if you're thinking insurrection for one minute, this is how Rome treats the innocent. (laughs) How are they going to treat the guilty? It's an insidious statement. This is Roman justice at its best with an iron fist. Yeah, he's innocent. This is how we treat the innocent. Let that be a lesson to you. Jesus is the object lesson in, 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 the, in Pilate's theatre. And so Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cry out, literally just, Crucify, crucify, crucify. This is the high priests and their entourage and their police, the ones who arrested Jesus. It's not the general Judean populace at this time. It's the hoi polloi, the best of Judaism. And they are in a frenzy and they won't listen to anything. They're just yelling and yelling and yelling. Crucify like a soccer crowd gone bananas. Crucify, 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 crucify. Pilate realises this is getting a little out of hand. And so... But he says, oh, take him and crucify him yourself. Knowing that they don't have the legal ability to do it. Oh, forgot, Jews are impotent. (laughs) They can't do their own dirty work. He's loving this. He loves to rub the Jews' noses in their own impotence. Take him yourself. I can find no guilt in him. (laughs) And the Jews are forced to come clean. And in verse 7 they say... We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. They've finally come clean that the reason why they are wanting his neck is for blasphemy, not sedition. Pilate's not interested in blasphemy. He is interested in sedition. They have not proven their case. They have not got the data. But something they said disturbs him. And in verse 8, when he heard this statement, he was more afraid. He's not particularly afraid, but this made him afraid. He was afraid that maybe the Jews were going to get out of hand. So again, he goes inside. It's a time for reflection, deliberation. Inside the house is where you do your thinking. And he gets Jesus out of their gaze and drags him inside and he's frantic now and he's a bit panicked. You see, Pilate is a superstitious man, like all Romans. And he had been brought up, he sort of had Marvel comic theology. That is, there were always these superheroes from the heavens who were cruising in and taking human form. And he's he's just interrogated Jesus in the first hearing and Jesus was talking about not being of this world, etc., and and another gospel tells us that his wife had a dream and, uh, and, and says, don't have anything to do with this man. And this is all playing on Pilate. And he starts to think, hold on just a minute. This is going too fast. Let's get off this ride. And he takes Jesus inside and he, and he says to him, and I just find this so ironic when he says to him, so who are you? Where have you come from? Origin is destiny is his identity and he wants to know Jesus' identity where have you come from tell us more about yourself and Jesus just eyeballs him this guy had a chance to know the truth he's forfeited as far as Pilate and Jesus are concerned it's game over one of the saddest things in the world will be the day that men and women of some note will stand before this Jesus and he'll have nothing to say to them. He'll turn his back on them. That's the tough love of Jesus. And he's quite capable of doing it. It's the most formidable man in this part of the world. He is silent. It's a thunderous silence. The silence... Of finality. And so Pilate is now panicked. And he says, don't you realise who you're talking to? 
Pilate's only got one gear, threat, coercion. And so he uses it doubly so. And he, he wants to know if this is guys from heaven, so he threatens heaven. What a nut. <laughs> He's threatening heaven, reveal yourself. It's all too late, Pilate. You've had your revelation. You won't speak to me. Don't you know I have the authority to release you? Your life is dangling by a thread and I hold that thread. Jesus calmly turns to him and says, Jesus isn't panicked. You'd have no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you. Either by Caesar or given to Caesar by heaven. You are a bit player, Paul. That's what Jesus is saying. Your authority is totally delegated, derived. You have no innate authority and you have no authority over me or heaven. This is what he is saying to him. And he who delivered you over to me has the greater guilt. You see what's happened here? Pilate is trying to do a judicial job and he's making a hash of it and Jesus has turned the chess table around and passed judgment on Pilate. Pilate thinks it's his court. Jesus has made it his court and Pilate is weighed and wanting. And he's weighed but the one who handed you over, Caiaphas and the boys, has the greater guilt but you have guilt too. End of story. The judge has made his decision. From then on, Pilate, in verse 12, sought to release him, wouldn't you? He is desperate now. He has a deep hunch that there might be more to this guy than meets the eye. And so he goes out and he says, there's got to be a way that we, we don't go this, down this road. Let's just back up a bit, is what he's saying to the Jews. And they come out with their trump card because they know what this guy's made of. They're made of the same stuff. They know that the only law that he respects is the law of power. And of that he is afraid. Like a good narcissist, they have a sense of knowing where the end of the road is. And that's what they appeal to. And they say, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar. You know, you, Caesar, anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They just throw it out there. But you see what Pilate has just been doing? He's come out with his own self-made king. He made Jesus. Now, even if a half-incorrect rumour makes its way back to Rome, Rome are going to be in there with their broad brushstroke justice like that and he'll be investigated not just for his corruption but for his sedition and he is panicked he is ambivalent he's caught between two equal senses of obligation not the obligation to self versus truth to right versus wrong it's the obligation to preservation of self in the immediate or preservation of self in the eternal but it's all about self and he's torn between these, they lead in two different directions. To, to take out heavenly insurance, he should be working for Jesus' release. But that's just self. You know, and some people are only interested in religion. Some people are only interested in Christianity. Because it's a good form of insurance. But that's not a valid reason to call yourself a Christian. And Pilate finally decides for the immediate self, the self-interest of self-preservation against Rome itself. And so then he brings Jesus out. And effectively what he is doing as he brings Jesus out in these words, and the text could mean actually that he sat Jesus down on the place of judgment. And he then says, effectively, let's run the tape back, the CCTV. Let's get Hansard, the official record, right, okay? 
and the Jews and Romans finally work together. Here is, what he, here is how it goes. He's saying, let's try this narrative on for size. Let's try this social construction of truth together. See if this satisfies. Try it on. This is what Pilate is saying. He brings Jesus out. It's about midday. And he says to the Jews, are you with me? Behold your king. They cry out, away with him, crucify him. Good, you're doing the right thing. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And you say, we have no king but Caesar. Let the, get that down in Hansard. And then we can all agree about that. So they've come to the same page. The Jews are happy. It's a win-win. And that's the sad thing in our society today. In the postmodern age that we live in, what's more important is harmony rather than truth. Listen to the news any day. It's more important that we all have the same view of marriage rather than the truth of the social and the physical constitution of marriage that men have always believed in. It's, always, it's, it's important that a woman has the rights of her own body. We don't want to listen to the truth that there's absolutely no difference between a baby a minute before it's born and a minute after it's born. Truth has taken a holiday in our world. But win-win, let's deal with that instead. And that's what Pilate and the Jews come to this day. They cry out, crucify, crucify. And then they sign their own theological death warrant. That moment they say, we have no king but Caesar. They have ripped up the covenant that Moses got them with God. Their God is no longer king. Caesar is king. They are secular people. You see the drama here? The leaders, the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, it was a delegated covenant that came to Israel through their leaders. And their whole history was a demonstration of what happened when they abused the covenant. They'd spent years in Babylon before they came back because they hobnobbed with other kings. They wanted to be like the nations. They were taken out of Egypt and given the covenant. They were liberated by Yahweh, this person, because they are to be his, to be loyal, to name his name, and have no, he would brook no other rivals. So at this point, when they choose Caesar as king, they're abandoning God. But we already knew that. These people and the Spirit of God are that far apart. They're on totally different neighbourhoods. So they take Jesus, they take him out, and John doesn't spend a lot of time. They take him to a place called the Place of the Skull, and there they crucify him with two others. And Pilate goes and he writes an inscription, and this is not abnormal, and he writes an inscription, but on it, doesn't just put their name so the passers-by can see who they were. It should have been you know, Jesus Ben Joseph or Jesus uh, Man of Nazareth or something. But instead, he writes, isn't it interesting, King of the Jews. And the, this got on the, the, the goat of the chief priest and they said, hey, look, I thought we had a deal. You know, can't you just edit that uh, he said he was the king of the Jews. You know, how about we just get a bigger bit of paper here? And you know, Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. I don't know if this is a sign that Pilate... I think he's just rubbing the Jews' noses in it again. He's got to get the last word. He's got to have the last say. You Jews. He holds them in contempt. So his version is the official version. This was your insurrectionist. Ha! Oh, and I think there's much faith here on display. This is a man possessed with his own bitterness. 
He has been beaten at the game, but he's trying to get the last word in. And isn't it a remarkable picture? Two things then happen in the next scene. On the one hand, we have this innocent man who is more than a man, naked and nailed like a biological specimen to a cross. As if he is criminality itself, when he's the exact opposite. Isn't it ironic? And right at that moment, those who are guarding him, I don't know why you guard a man pinned to a cross, those who are guarding him run a raffle because one of his undergarments is real good quality. That's the street they live on. Isn't that typical of so many people in our society? You can get a government elected as long as they pork barrel you well enough. That's where a lot of people live. That's how politics works. And so they hang him. But ironically, at that point, they're fulfilling scripture in Psalm 22. Expected this, that they would divide their gar- his garments and they would cast lots for his clothes as the psalmist had fulfilled. In fact, even Pilate's inscription is not so much a fulfillment of prophecy, but he doesn't realise that he's actually, in God's book, the first evangelist. Because Jesus himself had prophesied that if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men, all nations to myself. How come it is that this man who never wrote a book, who never moved more than 10 miles away from a home that he was in, never travelled, was never a king, never elected to any office, I say this to those who doubt, those who want to sit on the fence in agnostic pride. How come this peasant and none of the others has changed civilizations, has tamed the communists in China, has eradicated the raiding Vikings, wherever this peasant has had his day, the world has changed. Remarkable peasant, this one. Son of God or nobody. Which is the more plausible story? If we want to play the postmodern game, which narrative of the world makes more sense? Maybe Jesus knew who he was talking about. Maybe Jesus wasn't deluded. And right at that point, there are four women, Jesus' guard of honour. There are four Roman soldiers running a raffle. There are four women and probably this disciple standing there. Isn't it remarkable that at that moment, Jesus remembers duty to family? Mum, woman, your son. Son, your woman. Remarkable. That's the last thing I'd be thinking about in that situation. I don't know if you recall the exit execution, grisly execution of Saddam Hussein, the last thing he was doing in his last breaths was not worrying about mother. But this Jesus has his mind on the job and after this we come to the conclusion, knowing now that all was now finished. To fulfil scripture, he says... I thirst. To fulfill scripture, he says, I thirst. What scripture? What is remarkable here is when you go looking for a scripture prophesying someone thirsting, you can't get past the psalm of importunity, Psalm 69. And in that psalm, you read about these events. What effectively is happening here in Jesus' last hours is he was praying, muttering through Psalm 69, where the psalmist cries out, 
He has grown thirsty, crying out for Yahweh's vindication. And his eyes are dim, he says. And Jesus is reciting a boyhood psalm. He's doing his liturgy in front of the world. This is a moment of worship. And they hear him say the words from the psalm, I thirst, and they run in, stab a sponge, which is a good idea, dip it in the soldier's drink, weakened, diluted vinegar, shove it in his mouth. That's not what he was really about. And when he'd received this, he says these words. Three things. It is finished. His messianic commission is over. He has come to the end of the line and he's fulfilled the obedient purposes of the Son of God. He bows his head. The act of supreme submission, which was the theme of his whole life. And then these words are said. In our text, it's wrong. He actually gave up the spirit. He had a succession plan. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The spirit that had anointed him at his baptism and empowered him to obey and to do the works and the signs that we have seen through these weeks, he has no need of the Spirit and he releases the Spirit back to the heavenly company. At this time, he has a solitary experience which none of us will ever know. He is absolutely alone in the cosmos and even in the Godhead. He willingly gave up the Spirit. But that Spirit, ironically, would be poured out upon this world for all who would have him, even those high priests. They might rip up the covenant with Moses, but God had a succession plan. The new covenant in his blood which promoted the Spirit into our experience. <laughs> this passage says such a simple message to us all this morning. It is basically saying, you cannot be ambivalent. And be a Christian. You cannot sit on the fence. You have to resolve the issue who is Jesus once and for all. Because you resolve that one and it's trickle down economics from then. Everything drops into place, your priorities drop into place. The things you're holding on to fall away. Those decisions where you know the Spirit of God is calling you to obedience, they become paramount now because He is the truth. The one question I ask you this morning, this question as you answer it will change your destiny and your psychology and your family and where you end up in 10 years from now and in eternity and it's the question can you trust Jesus with your life can't be ambivalent about that you've got to either join the pilots of this world or you've got to line up with the women and you've got to look upon him and decide is he true? Can he be trusted? You see, if he can be trusted, then he can, can be trusted with your romantic life, your emotional life, with your money, with your real estate. You can do the most outrageous things that Jesus asks you to do if he can be trusted. 
until you resolve that one, you'll live a vacillating life. That's not what he wants for you. There is such a difference between a church that has made that decision and a church that's interested in Easter. Can he be trusted? There's the evidence. You're not getting any more. That's the end of the show. That's what we have to go on. And I think it's enough. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we come to that point again in our lives where we are brought and confronted with the ever-knowing eye of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in our midst this day. You know what each heart is saying. You know those things that we wrestle with, those things which we think are too insurmountable to give up, those things which are going to cost us, those decisions which are going to commit us. But Lord, in the light of what we see here and this data, this narrative, we see if we trust anything in this world, there is no one we can trust more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Reveal yourself to us in the inner recesses of our inner rooms that we might go out into the world to stand for your truth, your sort of justice, your sort of politics. May we be expended with you that we might know the resurrected Christ personally. We say this for your glory. You've drawn us close to yourself. We see you for who you are and it is wonderful. Amen.